0: Ladies and gentlemen, hello, and welcome to the podcast. We are the Ambassadors at Large. Great to have you with us. My name is Joe Genie, your host, based in Washington, DC. And uh, this is a show about international affairs. Today, we are going to talk about uh, energy markets. And we're going to try and figure out uh, why the price of gas is so low. uh, my guest already knows. He's going to try and explain it to us. Um, uh, I am delighted to introduce uh, my good friend, Nate Grunwald. Uh, Nate and I reported together for uh, Japanese newspapers in New York City, and he currently uh, works for uh, E&E Publishing. Uh, Nate, welcome to the program.
1: Glad to be here. Uh,
0: um, so, so tell me a little bit about... So you're, you're now based in, in Houston. So tell me a little bit about uh, who, who you're... Uh, you know, what E&E Publishing is all about and, and what you do all day.
1: Okay. Well, yeah, I write for Environment and Energy Publishing. Uh, you can find it online at www.eenews.net. Uh, it's as the title states. We cover news on environment and energy topics. Uh, headquartered in Washington D.C., we also have bureaus in California, uh, New York, uh, in the Southeast, and Midwest, and of course Texas here in Houston, um, and. Uh, Lately, since I moved down from New York, I've been focused primarily on covering the oil and gas industry. We also do utility sector, cover the power markets, um, and I still occasionally do uh, conservation and environmental reporting, uh, mainly on the Gulf of Mexico, uh, coast. Of Ch- China monitors kind of the post Macondo spill uh, cleanup efforts and re- restoration efforts that are still underway there. So yeah.
0: All right. So so you now, I mean, uh, you you now live in Houston. Um, my, uh, my, I've never actually been to Houston, but my, uh, my view of the city is sort of unfortunately colored by, uh, have you ever read the book, the world without us by Alan Weisman?
1: Uh, no, I actually have it somewhere in my library here. I haven't read it yet. I think, uh, yeah, <laughs> so, I, I need to. <laughs>
0: so the, the, he talks about what, what the world would look like if there were no humans. And, um, one of the things that he basically like, if we just disappeared and our stuff remained, what the long term effects would be, how nature would respond. And basically almost everything we have done in North America, nature would bounce back from pretty well, with the exception of two things in his view, uh, both of which actually sort of pertain to your life in some way. One of, one of which is house cats. He's clearly a dog person. He's like, (laughs) humans, house cats would just wreak a sort of bird apocalypse upon the American songbird population. Um, and then the other one was the city of Houston, which he sort of describes as like it would in in our absence, it would, like the nuclear power plants and the chemical plants would turn it into like an uninhabitable waste zone for thousands <laughs> of years. <laughs> so I have this sort of like totally unfair mm-hmm. in, in, in envisionment of Houston as being kind of like a like a, a boss level in Mega Man Two, like all like uh-huh. pits of acid and like <laughs> like yeah. steam pump punk pipes coming out of the walls and stuff.
1: Yeah, well, the the eastern half of the city certainly. Kind Of looks, it's not quite that bad, but it's quite industrialized. There's a lot of refining going on over there, oil storage tanks, petrochemical processing. But western side of the city is really nice. It looks just like a kind of a like a like, look like kind of like a Los Angeles, I guess, without the movie stars. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, that's Houston, ladies and gentlemen. Los Angeles without the movie stars. I think that's you know, that's uh, yeah, it's not bad. Yeah,
1: right? well, and obviously, the political persuasion is a little bit different than what you find in LA, but uh, <laughs> a yeah. little bit, yeah, <laughs> um.
0: But yeah, um, so so today's topic is basically a, a, a number of energy-related things. But particularly, I, I'm, I'm interested in um, why it is that gas is not $4.50 a gallon. Um, because if you go back like two or three years ago, the general sort of, you know, what you would read in the media a lot not you you had presently mm. called all of this mm-hmm. but 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 everybody else was sort of like we've hit peak oil Chinese demand you know the 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 BP oil spill had just happened it was like we're running out of oil we have to dredge it up from these dangerous offshore uh, you know deep mm. water ports uh, it's just gonna get more and more expensive mm. go buy you know a, a Volkswagen fuel-efficient car if only we had known <laughs> um, yeah, <right. laughs> uh, and it just seemed like that's the way it was going to go on forever and also there's turmoil in the middle east it's all the oil producers were in political chaos and and uh, and today uh, oil prices have tumbled they've tumbled through the, the last half of the the year where today i think they closed at something like $44 a barrel it's like 2 240 or something like that for for uh, a gallon of gas um what, what's happened? Why why have d- Did peak oil not happen? Is this a, a temporary thing or, or what?
1: Well, yeah, like you said, pretty much uh, the stories that peak oil and the uh, ever-increasing demand from China, those two stories have kind of completely upended themselves in the last, not even the last decade. So uh, just focus on the supply side of things with crude oil. Um, as you stated, like 2007, 2008, just before the financial crisis, that was a story that uh, the world was either approaching or close to soon hitting that point where pretty much all the world's oil fields were peaking and then in steady decline. And the presumption was that that was going to spike the price and cause economic havoc all over. While people in uh, in New York and other capitals, you know, financial capitals around the world were kind of speculating on that, a guy named uh, George Mitchell and his team were experimenting with, with ways to enhance Production of crude oil from really tight, not crude oil actually natural gas from really tight formations in a field in northeastern Texas called the Barnett. Um, George Mitchell was an oil tycoon, um, and he was spent about a decade experimenting with ways to get uh, more natural gas from the ground that started trapped in these tight formations or shell formations using a process called hydraulic fracturing. And I'm, probably everyone's heard of this; they call it fracking now. The, the industry actually. Came up with that term fracking, but something they, they regret because it's kind of like has a negative connotation to it.
0: Were uh, they Battlestar Galactica fans, or did they just not know about the show? So uh, I've always wondered.
1: Yeah, apparently yeah, they had no idea about the show, and that that was uh, the expletive. <laughs> but uh, they're <laughs> certainly aware of that now. Uh, so they were. So they, I'm pretty sure they weren't sci-fi fans at this point. But well, George Mitchell he hit on a a good formula uh, for utilizing. Um, pressure pumping, uh, pumping down special sand to sort of keep formations open, uh, basically cracking fissures in the earth and getting more natural gas out of these fields that people had these wells that, that other gas companies in abandoned, figured that they were tapped out because the pressure was so weak, the gas was just not really coming out. And instead of keeping this all to himself and becoming ever more richer, like he had billions of more dollars, he basically shared it for free, just gave it to the industry and they ran with it they, they found ways to marriage this technology with some other innovation that was developed in the offshore side of things called horizontal drilling to sort of put the two together to basically bring to life these gas fields that were previously uneconomic to develop and of course then he had the, the shale gas boom that occurred and, and all the Happiness that ensued with that, of course, with the the gasland documentary, and but but also just upending the natural gas market. Right about when that was sort of hitting its apex, um, it, the industry started experimenting to see if that they could do that. What they did for shale gas, they could do for shale oil. And around 2008 or so, they took this up to North Dakota to the Bakken shale. They did it. They started there. It's a little far away from all the infrastructure, but they do have conventional production there. But they also, they've known about the Bakken for quite some time, they thought it'd be easiest to uh, get, get the process to work in the Bakken, and work it did. And so the process just sort of spread. You had, uh, from the Bakken, the industry went down to South Texas, in an area to south of San Antonio, kind of stretching along to the Mexican border, called the Eagle Ford Shale. It was first started to develop as a gas, natural gas field, sort of like the Marcellus in the Northeast, uh, using hydraulic fracturing, horizontal drilling. But then they moved further north and took that to the oil plays, and they had great success with that. They just experimented, got better, more efficient at it. And what's occurred is that um, since the financial crisis recovery from that period, um, they've had. Success with this far beyond anything that anyone ever imagined. So what it, it amounts to is about For eight years ago US domestic crude oil production was around 5 million barrels per day Give it a little more than that um, In April this year it peaked at uh, It's not a it's not a new record, but it's it looks to be like the peak for now at uh, About 8.6 million barrels per day so not quite a doubling but a substantial increase seventy percent or so and this the, is, the
0: yeah this mm-hmm. is mostly from this this one technology and I mean for those for those who don't I mean like these these north Dakota uh refinery I mean you can see their operations from space like it's it's and North Dakota's GDP has been uh, on a double trajectory ever since this began. It's it's completely transformed the state. Um, I, I read a, a case study about how they were basically just trying to build cities from nothing because there. I mean, a lot of the areas where they're 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 doing this, there's actually no there's there's like not enough groundwater to support the population mm-hmm. of, of oil drillers who are coming in and oil workers. And so they're basically having to import whole cities and like enough bottled water for thousands of people and, and just build cities from nothing and then try to figure out how to get people to stay once the oil uh, is, is um, you know, once the boom <laughs> is passed. Um, yeah. <laughs> and this is, I mean, uh, there was another one I, I remember in, in Western New York where, New York outlawed fracking, and mm-hmm. Pennsylvania allowed it. And so there was this small area in in um, western New York that tried to secede to to join <laughs> Pennsylvania so
1: that they could really? frack. It. That's funny. There was actually a, a part of Colorado that tried to secede from the rest of Colorado because they felt they were being too unfairly treated by the state for you know the oil production that was happening there. So that's kind of funny. So this
0: this has been really transformational and very fast. I mean, you know, ten years ago, like you say, I mean, the, no one really. I had never heard of this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really only become a, a a thing this decade on the scale that it, that it can actually affect global oil markets and and prices. Yeah, and the last time,
1: just through conventional means, the U.S. in nineteen U.S. crude oil production peaked in nineteen seventy at about 10 million barrels per day. It's been going down ever since until about ooh, 2008 or so, I think, is when the uptick started happening again. So, uh, yeah, it's ha- it's come on a lot faster. They've managed to, uh, the re- there was already some uh, refinery capacity additions that were going, so refineries are able to take it. They expanded storage capacity very quickly. They expanded pipelines very quickly, and it's caught everyone off guard. Like, there was a, a study by the University of Texas, San Antonio, that's been looking at the, the economic impact of the Eagle Forest Shale, which is what they're, they're closest to. Um, their projections for what production would be at in like about 2017 actually occurred in about 2014. So it's, and they had to revise their numbers because the economics of that then, all that, you know, value added from that came a lot sooner than what they're expecting. So it's been, it's, it's caught everyone, a lot of people by surprise and a lot of regulators off guard so yeah, it's been interesting.
0: So so that's but that's just one of about three or four major geopolitical events that have just sort of transformed and completely mm-hmm. upended the energy market. The one is basically the U.S. on the the supply side becoming a a producer on par with what it used to be again because of mm-hmm. this and and going up to eight point six million barrels a day. Um, you've also got a slowdown i mean first there was a slowdown in the, the, the late aughts because of the recession but now you've mm-hmm. got the chinese economy really teetering and not growing like it did before and apparently that's had had an effect as well upon the demand side of the equation
1: exactly so um while the u.s is having all this production increasing uh, a lot of it was going overseas as refined product The ports around houston everywhere that people would turn into gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, and sell it abroad. But the vast majority of it was being consumed here, which means there's a lot less imports coming in to the US. And that means if you have a, a situation where the US has increased its crude oil production about 4 million barrels per day, there's 4 million barrels of extra per day of production. Maybe it's called 3 million barrels per day of extra production just kind of floating around um, and looking for homes. 2009, of course, there was a recession. You see a drop drop in the price and drop in activity, but that's come back up relatively quickly. Uh, It came back up relatively quickly since then. Um, It's been just a confluence of things as the US was, was increasing its production, while the price was heading up to $100 per barrel. That encouraged other countries to invest, increase their production, putting more crude oil onto the market. And this was okay, and the prices kept going for a while, mainly because of the Arab Spring events. And because also in 2011, China doubled down on its uh, economic stimulus program. So, the thing that it started to try to recover itself from the Great Recession, uh, they basically did it again in 2011. So, you did see demand. You did see, you know, Libya fell apart. That's about 3 million barrels per day of exports offline, kind of there. Um, and the Middle East looked really scary, And so people kept price up north of a hundred dollars a barrel,
0: yeah, so I was just about to ask about that because speaking of three million barrels of oil just floating around mm-hmm. uh, when 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 the Arab Spring happened, and Libya basically went from three million barrels a day to zero, mm-hmm. and Iraq falls back into chaos. Syria has been basically destroyed. You had uh, just turmoil and tumult throughout the arab world and not just the arab world you had political tumult in venezuela you had uh, other you know uh russia intervening in ukraine and sanctions regimes um why hasn't all of this made, i mean like literally one one of my just just amazing moments of of the entire of this these last few years was the time where some some libyan militants grabbed an oil tanker and sailed mm-hmm. it out into the mediterranean and tried to like homeboy's shopping network you know like in mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. a while we've got a tanker full of oil Radio um, yeah why, why why hasn't this caused calamity why isn't why isn't the price of oil still up at a hundred dollars a barrel when you have so many oil producers in, in chaos
1: well it did cause enough calamity from 2011 to about the first part of 2014 to keep it north of a hundred dollars per barrel um, so it didn't spike up to $200 per barrel because all the production happening in the U.S. And according to the government data, the production coming out of the U.S. and the, the basically the backing out all those imports that the U.S. would have taken, that more than made up for the loss of production from Libya, from even Egypt during its troubles, um, and other parts of the Middle East. Uh, and so for a while, it was still kept up high in 2014 when the ISIS thing happened in Iraq lost – a big chunk of its northern territory. But when it became apparent that that genie was going to be kept in this bottle, um, that that ISIS thing was going to kind of be contained by the powers that that be around there, even with Syria kind of still in chaos, um, that gave the market kind of pause to see where things are at in terms of production, supply. New production coming online, they had a situation where the U.S. was expanding its output by a million barrels per day each year. That's quite a rapid rate of growth. Um, Canada was increasing its oil sands production because it was $110 per barrel, and that was good for them. Um, other countries started getting you know, investments were being made in West Africa. Brazil, of course, was pushing big on its offshore projects. And then it came to a point where it was either just like China's absorbing all this crude, or um, the world's economy was kind of really being resilient. That data stopped coming in. So in about mid-2014, people were thinking, well, maybe OPEC is going to cut production to kind of keep things in balance, and OPEC did not. Saudi Arabia said no, and that's when things started falling down. Uh,
0: so, so the, And that brings up the third pillar of this, um, which, which fascinates me. How much of what the Saudis did was just to screw over the Iranians?
1: <laughs> I don't think, actually, yeah, there's a lot of speculation on the, the geopolitical uh, ramifications or if that was went a lot to the thinking. Uh, based on the uh, preponderance of opinions that I can solicited in my reporting, there's general a thought that Saudi we didn't do this to sort of target Iran or target Russia. They just they saw the lack of import opportunities into the United States, the sort of the backing out of the imports into one of the world's largest oil markets, it used to be the one of the biggest consumers of crude oil, you know, knocking back about half of its imports needs. Um, they feared a loss of market share and for them crude oil is the only thing they export I mean they might do some other things but if you look at the trade data it's pretty much their only thing they have to sell so they were facing a position where if they did pull back you know OPEC is famous for cheating other countries might just sort of fill in that gap or they would have seen it you know you know that advantage taken by the Canadians or even the Russians who aren't a part of OPEC you don't need to kind of even abide or even pretend to abide by the cartels kind of Uh, Quotas.
0: It's interesting because it's for the Saudis. It kind of seems like it's sort of like a, a, you know, people talk about the post-American world where we're no longer Mm -hmm. the sole superpower. It it, we kind of seem like we've gotten there with the Saudis, where it's like the post-Saudi oil market, where you know, time was they used to be able, you know, as the saying goes, they were the swing producer. They were the only one who produced enough and consistently enough Mm -hmm. that they could dictate prices. And it seems like they're not able to do that anymore. And for a country like Saudi Arabia, that's actually kind of Really important because their budget is based on ha- maintaining a certain mm-hmm. price and they can't quite control that anymore. And they also have a booming population. I mean, people don't realize what Saudi Arabia's population demographics look like. They look kind of like Iraq's. It's like median Mm -hmm. age of 21. Population doubles every 20 to 25 years. And all of these folks, and like you say, they basically export oil. So Mm -hmm. all these folks need jobs. They need housing subsidies to make up for the fact that there's not a lot of other economies. So it's actually really important for the Saudis to be able to maintain oil at a certain level. And it's got to be a bit unnerving that they can't do that by fiat anymore.
1: And that's why they're fighting so hard for this. They they have a, a big uh, chest of cash that they can last a little bit longer. There's already evidence that they're going to start doing some budget crunching, uh, even borrowing on the international markets, sort of to sort of outlast this thing. But yeah, you're right. Uh, also, it's growing population that also used to play into the peak oil theory. Uh, the Saudis are going to be using more of their own crude. They're also going to be turning it more into refined products because they want to, you know, sort of diversify a bit they don't want all just crude oil they want to sell gasoline diesel other fuels chemicals petrochemicals for sure um so there's that but that also um sort of explains their position this is you know this is for they don't have two years to turn around and start you know exporting jumbo jets or something like that they got to do crude oil if it's going to be a painful two years they'll they'll do it and uh basically you're right that they 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 found that they're unable to sort of manipulate the price because, of course, they would certainly like to keep oil at $100 per barrel if they could. They just can't control what happens in the shell fields in the U.S. But they can uh, basically dig in their hills and keep production high to be- essentially force all their other higher-cost producers out of the market, which is precisely what's happening now. Crude oil production in the United States is now falling. And um, it was a gradual sort of... Ebb and flow between fall and decline on the monthly data, but now it's it's pretty evident. It's gonna. The, I think the thinking is that the, at least by next year, over this time next year, U.S. crude oil production, because of all the pullback from the shale oil drilling, will probably be down by about nine hundred thousand barrels per day, which is really steep, really fast, considering how. But I guess considering how quickly it grew, uh, it's is kind of understandable.
0: Okay, so so they're they're sort of gently, they're competing with us and they're geo, you know, economically and competing with the Iranians geopolitically. And, and at this point, um, probably the, the, the Russians too, because they're taking opposite sides in the Syrian civil war.
1: No, they're so. all fighting for market share. And the, the, the real interesting sort of uh, kind of item that people didn't really consider about, the oil bulls, w- was that they didn't really see a nuclear deal coming between Iran and, and the six parties, the, uh, you know, the P5 plus uh, Germany. Um, and so, as even as the U.S.'s de- production is declining, the Iranians have promised that they're just going to add more to the market once they get the deal, you know, sealed by the IAEA. More or less, they're going to have when the European sanctions are lifted. So, it's uh, it's an ugly kind of um, you know the hug fight between these major oil producers. The Saudis want to keep their market share. The Russians were expanding output to China. They're, at least they're hoping to. Um, there were more gas natural gas side of things but of course certainly crude oil they wanted to grow their production as well um the iranians were coming back in the market after about three years of sort of being sidelined out of europe and uh, japan i guess uh so yeah it's um so right now a lot of people nervous in houston are very nervous because drilling activities is fallen by more than half uh, a lot of people were laid off um they're nervously watching what the price does um, they're trying to get their costs down very quickly. Um, and a lot of these smaller companies are really holding on on the skin of their teeth right about now. Uh, I
0: um, you, you have to really be kind of ballsy to get into this field, because there's so mm-hmm. many different interlocking factors. And you kind of have to be judging like, oh, we're going to invest in oil, even though like Islamic State is beheading people where oil fields <laughs> used to be. Yeah. Um, but um, so a, a couple of th- I mean, one of the things is that it's it, it sort of the, the nature of the market is kind of diffused. There's many sellers, there's many buyers. And so it kind of limits what one country can do. So like a couple of things that occurred to me was, um, you know, the U.S., sanctions on Iran will stay in place, but since the UN ones are going away and the mm-hmm. EU ones are going away, and not just those, but all the countries that were sort of pressured into not buying Iranian oil or buying less, like Japan and China, mm-hmm. there's it's basically going to be a free-for-all. They're all going to buy Iranian oil. So the fact that the United States is not buying Iranian oil is irrelevant. Yeah, pretty uh, much. <clears throat> and then the other one, I mean, not to compare Iran and Canada, but... Um, <laughs> Hillary Clinton just came out against the Keystone XL pipeline. Um, does the Keystone XL? I mean, presuming never, never mind Nebraska's aquifer, um, but uh, or, or the sort of environmental impacts of just building the pipeline itself. But as far as I mean, a lot of people are opposed to the the the, the pipeline because. It promotes a, a dirty fossil fuel that contributes to climate change. Um, mm. Does that make any difference? I mean,
1: the, does uh, you mean like does it make a difference in sort of the market dynamics now that that pipeline is sort of on hold?
0: Yeah, like like if we don't build the pipeline, I mean, it, it, Stephen Harper has, has doubled down and just like, Oh, so you leftists don't want me to build this pipeline. Well, maybe I'll just build it through Western Canada, chop down a bunch of old Mm -hmm. growth forests, displace Mm -hmm. a bunch of first nations peoples from their ancestral lands, and then sell it to China. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But like, like even besides that, I mean, the the oil is there. It exists. Um, it's being taken out of the ground or uh, literally out of the ground in this case, because it's tar sands. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, does the United States not building this pipeline make any make any difference?
1: Not much. The the, the refining industry in Houston was looking forward to the Keystone XL because uh, they can make more money off of turning the Canadian diluted bitumen into a refined product. And there, a lot of the refining complexes along the Gulf Coast are sort of tooled towards handling Venezuelan crude, which is heavy sulfuric crude. Canadian crude oil kind of kind of similar to that. Uh, except you don't have to ship it from Venezuela; you could take it down by pipeline or by rail. So they were looking forward to it. But there's been so much uh, light sweet crude coming into the market that uh, just—I I, mean—I don't think a lot of people are going to, in this current climate now, are going to shed many tears that that the you know, Keystone XL is not online. That it's—it makes better economics for them, but it doesn't really affect the sort of this what the supply picture is in the United States or globally and the oil is just going to get to market anyway like i said harper's either going to pump it out and sell it to china or it's going to come down here but not on a on, on a via pipeline but by rail on, on trains which is which is what's happening anyway so right now so yeah
0: I, I love it when the political debate has just very, very little to do with reality. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's
1: there's already millions of miles of pipelines skirting across the United States. So Canada's point is just one more pipeline and we know how to do it safely. They've had some spills, but usually from not from brand new projects, but from aging projects or retooled older lines. Um, the safety record and brand new pipeline is pretty good. There's already a lot of pipelines and just and. They have a case to be made about safety as well, um, but I think it's sort of just become a, a, uh, a poster child in the climate change debate. So Obama's already getting a lot of flack from the environmental community for allowing greater offshore drilling, for proposing rules to allow more shale oil or gas production on federal land. They, it's, not quite, it's not there yet, but they propose rules to regulate it to kind of hint that they would be okay um, right before the bus happened, of course. So... Keystone XL is just because it's, it's dirty. It's seen as, you know, quote-unquote dirty crude oil, you know, gain oil sands, which is higher CO2 con- or higher greenhouse gas content from a conventional crude oil. Um, it just became like a rallying cry for the for the environmental movement to try to kind of draw a line of sand from one project that they see as, if it had gone through, it would have been uh, another step back in terms of dealing with climate change.
0: Yeah, it 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 seems like it's more of a a, of a symbolic fight than anything else, which kind of brings me to the my I guess my my last point, which is sort of necessity is the mother of invention, and fuel efficiency and various kinds of environmentally friendly technologies have often resulted from uh, a a a price hike that encouraged innovation. If gas is only like two. Yeah, you know, every time you see the price of gas go down, you see like sales of SUVs go up. It's sort of like, you know, in in the in the industry, you kind of have to build your your technologies to plan mm-hmm. for the long term. Like you have to build a pipeline knowing that there'll be a boom and a bust before your pipeline even gets finished. Uh consumers don't seem to behave that way. Um or or at least maybe not not as much. If I'm a person who cares about climate change,
1: mm-hmm.
0: how should I feel about all of this?
1: Um well, there's, uh, there's, uh, don't don't give up hope entirely. Obviously, with the vehicle fuel thing, it's going to be, uh, yeah, for the proponents of electric cars, uh, fuel-efficient cars, hybrids. Um, they they're probably a little bit nervous right now. Tesla may be eyeing this. Obviously, they have a market for people who are concerned about climate change and want to just not rely on oil at all for their transportation. We know the general public is going to be a little bit harder because. The best indications that I've read and or listened to are that this is oil. It's going to be a period of volatility. Oil swings up, like you said, forty-four dollars and then fifty, then you know, whenever. But once it settles, it's going to settle on the lower end. And it's going to be there for at least a decade. And so, if you're going to be building a factory for electric cars, uh, for fuel-efficient vehicles, you got to just innovate even more to make that get that price point was even more attractive to the broader consumer market because you're right SUV sales are going up um, that's that's maybe it was a summer temporary thing but it was definitely in the data um, as far as the, there's a flip side of this thing globally it's interesting because it now challenges the coal industry more and how does it do that a lot of uh, natural gas over overseas especially in Asia is consumed in the form of liquefied natural gas LNG and the LNG trade is sort of indexed to the price of crude oil so the higher crude oil prices are, the higher LNG prices are, and vice versa. With lower oil prices globally, it makes LNG a little bit more enticing. Now, people are concerned because China looks like its economy is slowing down. It might not have the demand. Uh, but if governments adopt a policy where they have to you know, really tackle climate change, the first victim of that is going to be the coal industry. And, and governments and maybe companies will, instead of looking to build more coal plants, will look at natural gas, either from pipeline through, from Russia or through the LNG trade, now more inexpensive LNG. Still not dirt cheap, but a lot cheaper than it was, uh, especially around the Fukushima disaster, because Japan's a major LNG importer. Um, and domestically, obviously, the shale oil and shale gas thing will continue at a lower pace. But now that the picture uh, is more of abundance, not of scarcity, especially on the gas side of things, it also challenges coal even more. And you see this. Uh, the coal industry is having a really tough time in the United States. And there's indications that, I mean, the natural gas industry overseas is a little more uh, skeptical or pessimistic about their prospects because coal is cheap. But coal is cheap, especially in the United States, because no one wants it. Um, it's, it's it's politically, you know, uh, you, you attract a lot of negative political attention. The investment community is kind of souring on it. Uh, you have... You know, threat of lawsuits from the environmentalists—all that goes away if you just build a natural gas plant. And with gas cheap, you know, that's sort of where the thinking is evolving. So it's—it's it's, uh, oil does put pressure on renewables in the sense of the uh, electrifying the vehicle fleet, if that ever happens. But globally, when it comes to fighting, you know, climate change, a real quick way to do it would be converting switching from coal to gas, because then you already have like a 50% reduction in CO2 emissions uh, and a lot of other ancillary benefits from that.
0: Uh, so, so that so get,
1: might, might yeah. be what we see in the next decade or so.
0: So natural gas is kind of the bridge that gets us from our coal past to our renewable future, in a sense.
1: It's possible. And um, I'll yeah. Yeah. say the coal industry, uh, the coal industry, the miners themselves aren't really doing this. The companies that pull the coal, the ground are, but the power sector is... is is experimenting with the, the carbon capture and storage, so CO2 sequestration, capturing the stream of carbon out of a coal-fired plant and putting it into the ground. Uh, but it's it's got a long ways to go. It's just very nascent. There's a lot of projects, like experimental projects, all around the world, but very few have actually been built. Um, so that might be coal's one saving grace to remain viable. But, otherwise, but aside from that, um, Yeah, the oil oil boom was interesting, uh, especially down in Houston. Now we're in a bus, um, so every day I'm writing articles about the oil price. Um, Longer term, um, if there is a serious policy, and that's big if, if there is a serious policy push towards addressing climate change, which is probably the world's biggest, it is the world's largest environmental uh, problem, um, that's going to favor gas over coal. And so that's just where the momentum is going to go. You see it now in the United States. And uh, there's pessimism, but I think based on even – no matter what's happening to China's economy, they're, pro- they're probably a little bit tired of having dirty air right now. And so they're certainly eyeing that, those other options. And, and one of the quickest ways with existing technology to reduce CO2 emissions and uh, pollutants of, uh, of other sorts, other sorts of pollutants, uh, is to shut down a coal plant and build a natural gas plant in this, in this place. So, so we'll see. Things, Anything can I, happen. I,
0: I'm I'm delighted <laughs> to hear that the 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 shale boom might be good for the environment, and that I don't really have to care whether Keystone gets built or not, which is what I sort of long <laughs> suspected. Um, Nate, it's been a, it's been so great having you on the podcast. Uh, thank you so much for for coming on and for sharing your insight. If you want to plug your um, your your uh, your newspaper one more time for those who are interested in learning more about this,
1: you bet. Um, so I, yeah, I write for Environment Energy Publishing or ENE Publishing. You go to ee to learn more. Uh, Monday through Friday, we, we publish a variety of newsletters on environment and energy issues. Uh, Green Wire is our flagship publication, but we also have Climate Wire, EE Daily, uh, and I primarily write for Energy Wire.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on the program. Uh, once again, we are the Ambassadors at Large. This is a uh, a uh, foreign affairs podcast that uh, airs just as often as I want to air it, because right now it's just me over here. Uh, I'm thank Joe you. Genie, your host. You can find me on the web at joegenie.com. My... Uh, my research papers, my blog, this podcast, and, uh, and my music uh, are all on there as well. Um, and, uh, and you can find this podcast uh, both at joegini.com slash podcast and on iTunes by uh, searching ambassadors at large. You uh, can subscribe to the podcast for free. If you like the podcast, leave us a five-star review, uh, talk in glowing terms about how awesome we are. It really helps spread the word uh, about us. Uh, and thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you.